Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And just coming up to four o'clock and indeed time for Tuesday Home Timer and I'll be here until six o'clock tonight. Today, the crisis in Venezuela moves to allay that crisis with speaking with Fred Frentes, who's a journalist and author. Huge and long-term expansion of the Werribee landfill. Many people in the area are very upset about that. I'll be speaking to Harry Van Morst, who's the director of the Western Region Environment Centre. Part two of IPAN Report, Independent, Peaceful and Australian Network Report for August with Bevan Ramsdy, who was one of the founding members of 3CR back in the early 70s. Palestinian children in Israeli detention. Two founders of military court watch, Salwa Diabris and Gerald Horton. And I'll be speaking with them near the ending of the program. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when major differences exploded at the top levels of government as U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, attacked his former pay-them-to-keep-quiet-and-keep-the-dirt-from-the-door lawyer. Bad, bad. The worst bad ever. We'll return to that story, but imagine the excitement in those Pacific Island paradises where Trublimozzi makes the no-proper-papers-queue-jumping-illegal-boat-people-feel-so-at-home Nauru and Manus Island as also a bit of difference exploded within government in that U.S. of offshoot, U.S. of acolyte, True Blue Aussie. And the big supremo stakes came down to the past two ministers for concentration camps raise a wire and sink the boats after they had quickly evicted the pesky woman. Well, the caring business class party has such respect for women. Thank goodness the tailing cesspool we referred to last week was so huge and so deep with constant new arrivals like Julie bash up the workers and former big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull glug glug glugging and I'm sure we also all feel for poor Julie former Clayton Hurt solicitor for the asbestos industry just doing her job making sure victims expired before they could get any of her clients money anyway imagine the excitement on Nauru and Manus they must have thought all their Christmas islands had come at once it doesn't matter who wins, they've both been like fathers to us, providing us with this island paradise home for years and years and years and years. An explosion where the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats, but no longer keeping us secure, Constable Peter Duffer's brilliance shone through as he failed grade one arithmetic. Doe! But like do Ray me let's start at the very beginning of the week, which kicked off with Malcolm Tunner Bull. Well, he started the week as Tunner Bull and ended it as Malcolm Terminal, sinking Constable Duffer into that same fossil's tailing cesspool where we last saw the glug, glug, glug disappearance of the negative fossil's energy policy 183 and tax cuts for the filthy rich. Then within hours, the horror 
as the sunk Constable Duffer suddenly burst to the surface a zombie, that zombie pate covered in the fossil sludge. And by week's end, Malcolm and Julie had sunk without trace. Then the zombie returned to the swamp, that zombie bald pate we last saw sinking into the mire, having been struck heavily by its own baton. So, so thankfully there was no chance of it doing any damage. But the zombie wouldn't lie down. Two days later it re-emerged back where it had all begun, as Minister for Concentration Camps raised a wire and sink the boats, sparking more wild celebrations on Nauru and Manus. And with the member for Karangamite in mind, who objected to a seat being renamed Cox, I don't want to be the member for Cox, we asked Pete where he represented. I'm uh, like, you know, uh, like uh, Dixon. Uh, yes, we know that, but what's your seat called? I just, you know, like told you, Dixon. Two of those items which disappeared into the mire, negative energy policy 183 and tax cuts for the filthy rich, had been led by the new deputy big supremo Josh Prydem Icebergs and our new big supremo scuttled them more less than respectively. So obviously the caring business class lot of high regard for failure believe they must reward failure. Although in that case then why did they get rid of Malcolm? True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 Thursday, Happy Picky labelled, It was a show of unity, with Malcolm being loved by Scuttle Them's co-conspirator in tax cuts for the filthy rich, Matthias Rotten Tudor, and Scuttle Them himself. And what unity and loyalty. Cause, by the time the paper hit the streets, Matthias was standing behind Malcolm clutching this huge blood-covered knife. And with dripping knife still in hand, Matthias said the man he'd just stabbed, A2 Brutius, the man he'd just stabbed, will go down in history as having achieved great things for True Blue Aussie great things. Don't know about you, Lister, but I can't think of one. Yet Malcolm said he was proud of his record, showing how easily pleased he is. He did list spending billions of our hard-earned on the merchants of death's weapons of mass destruction and smashing the construction unions. Some record. And finally, on the events which saw the press gallery having multiple orgasms all week, a leading Constable Duffer supporter, Conchita Fiery Ranswell, displayed a firm grip of policy and reality by telling the ABC the answer to homelessness in True Blue Aussie was to... Cut immolation. <laughs> no, I've got no idea either, listener. An explanation might have helped or probably might not. Conchita was Minister for Pacific Islands, Pacific Relations or Affairs or something, so we asked her what she had seen her role as. My role? Isn't it obvious? Keep them out. Conchita, your name sounds Italian, but obviously, therefore, you're of indigenous stock. Huh? I don't follow. The result of all of the above, of course, will mean so much to lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions across the country as they celebrate yet another report that real wages continue to fall behind cost of living. They're caring employers in this so-called reporting season reporting record profits but expressing their concern for those workers who made a minor contribution to those profits like, say, 100% over slow wages growth which they recognise as a problem, to which 
the week that was, has regularly argued there seems to be a pretty simple answer, showing our ignorance of how the greatest little economic order of them all works, caring employers declaring they can't see any chance of real wage increases in the foreseeable, which, given the caring employer's record in supporting wage rises of any sort, converted to plain English means never. Then again, the poor caring employers get sympathy from that great fighter for the working class, non-evil union, good, good, good union, the Shopping the Workers Association, which boasted it had reached a new agreement with Woolworths Tribunes, which lowered the workers' base rate. A great result, it said, <laughs> with friends like. But just a continuation of that good, good, good unions, or sorry, associations, long record of radical sellouts. In the, hang on, that's pretty confusing department, an English woman, a doctor and her four-year-old uh, daughter, were imprisoned for three days after landing in Dubai because she drank a glass of white wine on the plane. And here's the pretty confusing bit. She was flying on the local airline, so the mob who jailed her for drinking alcohol served her the alcohol. Um, uh, oh, oh, it's 4pm at this time of day, I'd say, let's have a drink and forget about it. Still, she was luckier than that woman in Indonesia at other people's business this week, this is true, jailed for 18 months for blasphemy for complaining about the noise during prayers at a neighbouring mosque. Now, Back to the big story, Donald. After his former long-term pay-up-to-get-me-out-of-trouble lawyer pleaded guilty to paying up, Donald said he knew nothing of the paying up, but did know the paying up wasn't from donations or campaign funds, but was his own money. So obviously, seeing Donald knew absolutely nothing about this, Donald so trusted this lawyer, he gave him open access to his own money. And Donald warned that no one should ever use this lawyer, the worst lawyer ever, ever, whom he had used for years, although it may be years before that becomes an issue. And this other guilty party, a former head of his campaign, was a great man who should never have been charged. Just ignore the minor fact that Dewey found him guilty. And he was a great man because he didn't break which, dare we say it, might indicate that if he did break, he might just have a few things to say about Donald. No, no, because one of Donald's current lawyers, Rudy, said Donald couldn't give evidence because the truth isn't the truth, which must have former secretary for invading the whole world, Donald Rumsfeld, the Arabs, he have, you, you don't know what you know, you don't, don't know, and you don't know, etc., seething with jealousy. Not seething, but celebrating the fossils behind last week's events as our new big supremo separates emission reduction from energy policy and announces he's not concerned about climate change because he wants to concentrate on what's happening now. So that must be good news because Shuttle them has decreed climate change is not happening now. And finally, the... Oops, that backfired badly award of the week to former minister for handing all that lovely, lovely superannuation money to the big banks and the big financial institutions. Kelly, Odawire, Odawire workers so evil. Ensuring the matter was in the terms of reference of the banking Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission to make sure it nailed evil unions and workers, ensuring they were removed from having anything to do with their own money, replaced by true 
truly independent, responsible bankers and corporate directors. But sadly, oops, that backfired badly as the Royal Commission nailed the truly independent, responsible for ripping off workers big time, forcing the government to cast yet another essential policy into that fossil cesspool to sink without trace. Kelly, your well-earned award is on its way. Good afternoon. And thanks once again to Mr Kevin Healy for his week that was. Next on the program to Venezuela, and I'm speaking with Fred Fuentes, a journalist, author and researcher. First, Fred, the reported flow of Venezuelans to neighbouring countries in South America. We're told that this is the biggest exodus since Syria. One figure I read is 2.3 million have left Venezuela since 2015. How credible is that figure and how can these neighbouring countries assimilate such numbers? Certainly there are disputes over the exact figure. Having said that, I think everyone would agree that there has been a large problem uh, in terms of people uh, leaving Venezuela over the last couple of years. Whether the figure is the one that you just gave or some of the lower figures that have been given by the Commissioner for Refugees, what is definitely clear and obvious is that there has been a, a very large-scale exodus of Venezuelans from the country due to the very uh, severe economic situation the country is facing. Also, a thing I picked up on was the fact that they're saying that 90% or in one area, 90% of the people are only going for a short time. They're not planning to leave Venezuela forever. They're going over to make some money and then they come back. Well, I think certainly because of the economic problems and in particular the problems that Venezuela's had in regards to its currency, uh, one of the ways that many families have uh, decided to deal with the situation is to send a family member overseas to be able to earn money in US dollars to be able to send back to the country. So this is, you know, in that sense we're not talking about, as, as you said, you know exactly as you said, we're not talking about people who are fleeing in terms of with no idea of wanting to come back, but rather actually uh, you know, seeing this as an opportunity due to the dire circumstances that they're, that they're in uh, to seek out a, a, another source of, a source of income for the family uh, but without that being the idea of the, you know, permanently migrating to other countries. And are these the, the middle class people leaving or are these the working class people? Because they said that most of the people have got a passport in other countries. Not everyone has a passport but I'm just wondering in Venezuela. I, I think what you're seeing is, is probably, a, given the scale, the numbers, is, is, a, is a cross-class sort of migration. Having said that, I think the majority, uh, largely those that are able to uh, afford to leave the country, are those coming from the middle-class uh, sectors. They're also the ones that have tended to be more anti the government. And so, you know, there has been, you know, it's, it, it sort of uh, goes beyond just simply uh, a sort of a sense of wanting to find a, a way out of the economic situation but also very much a, a conscious decision by some sections of, of the middle class to say well we would prefer to take our knowledge elsewhere uh, rather than as they said you know help this evil regime stay in power so that you know I think what we're seeing there is, is there's a mixture of different reasons depending on the class background of, of the people of why they, they're leaving the, the Venezuela at, at this point in time set in the context of a, a very severe economic crisis that the country has been facing now for you know, roughly about three, four years. There's also the neighbouring countries seem to be jacking up on the people coming in now. Is this the first time this has happened? I think 
really, if, if we want to understand the issue of, of the migration problem with Venezuela today, uh, it is really important to put it in the context of a highly politicised discourse that's been put up in the media and also been utilised by neighbouring governments to bring about pressure on Venezuela. As I said in answer to your first question, there's no doubt that there is a, a problem that, that needs to be, be resolved in terms of migration leaving Venezuela. Having said that, up until recently, due to the civil war in Syria, by far the largest country having a problem or issue of internal displacement and of forced migration was a country that neighbours Venezuela, Colombia. In fact, several million Colombians live in Venezuela due to the decades-long civil war that has been occurring there. And that also explains part of the, the migration between the borders of also certain Colombians going back, back home uh, because of the current situation in Venezuela, but with the idea of returning uh, to Venezuela. But all of this gets lost in, in this broader discussion that attempts to really politicise this issue, one that actually also the US government has been stoking very directly by the fact that it's made it clear and offering huge amounts of humanitarian aid to those who make it to camps outside of Venezuela's borders. So very much almost a, a monetary incentive for people to leave the country to cre continue to, to create this, this, this sort of problem. So, yes, this problem needs to be solved. What we're seeing also is a politicisation of this problem, uh, in particular by neighbouring countries like Colombia and Brazil, uh, and also the, the US government as well. These camps that the US is, is helping to finance, does that mean that the people aren't in desperate situation like you could, you'd imagine when you see what's happening in Syria? I, I don't think you could compare the situation in Venezuela to Syria. Uh, clearly, they're, they're two very different situations, but I, but I think the, the, the key point is the hypocrisy of the US government on the one hand offer aid at the same time as it's imposing financial and economic situations on Venezuela that is a major cause of the reason of why people are, are leaving. It's like going to Syria and bombing Syria and then saying, oh, but we're really helping because we're giving money to refugees in, in neighbouring countries. Well, possibly stopping the bombing or, in the case of Venezuela, easing the sanctions and lifting the sanctions completely could have just as big, if not a bigger impact in terms of helping to uh, relieve ordinary people's strains in their daily life than what is occurring at, at this point in time, which is a symbolic amount that's being given in contrast to the huge amounts that currently the US is holding up in terms of Venezuelan money in its own banking sector uh, because of the sanctions. Can you talk more about those sanctions? Yes, well, I think it's important to note there's a whole variety of different types of sanctions that we could talk about when it comes to uh, US sanctions and also European Union sanctions. They're not exactly the same, but there is some overlap in them. What we have and what is generally most referred to in the media are the individual sanctions, and that is sanctions on individual members of the, the Venezuelan government or the armed forces. What that means is that if they have assets overseas, those assets are frozen, it generally means they're not allowed to travel, um, you know, not given visas to be able to travel to, to these countries, which obviously can become a problem, for instance, if you... Um, to give a, a hypothetical situation, you're the Minister of Food and you need to travel to the European Union to sign agreements with uh, companies over there in order to be able to import food to deal with the food shortages. Well, that becomes basically impossible if you have sanction, individual sanctions on those officials, uh, meaning that they're not able to travel to those countries. So you have, on one level, those individual sanctions on particular members of the government. On top of that, you also have sanctions that have been imposed essentially on 
PDVSA debt bonds and on government debt bonds. And what this basically means is, two, is a twofold problem that the government faces. The firstly, it faces the most immediate problem, which is that any other government in the situation that Venezuela is facing today, one of the first things that they will try to do would be to restructure some of these debt bonds. Uh, they would essentially want to sit down with the banks and try to work out some loan repayment sort of uh, you know, situation where they can fix up the loan repayment, perhaps delay it by taking out another credit. Uh, kind of the simple things that any other government, as I said, would do in this situation. Were they barred from doing that because the sanctions stopped any U.S. banks being able to do that uh, with Venezuela government debt and with PDVSA uh, debt? So this has a real crippling problem on the government's budget. It means the government is forced to either have to pay their debt now in full amounts or face default and the impacts that that would have on its, uh, on its economy and its ability to sign any kind of further future financial uh, deals with uh, any other banks or, or countries around the world. It means that, and that money therefore can't be used for dealing with the, the current situation. But it, that those sanctions extend beyond those most immediate things because what it also brings about is a fear, and this is the government has been, the US government has been very open about this, the fear from others doing business with Venezuela that perhaps they could also be tainted and be caught up in the trap of these sanctions. And so what we're seeing is that a lot of companies that previously dealt with Venezuela uh, have made it clear, and they've publicly stated this, and we see this, for instance, you know, Chamber of Commerce in, in a lot of Central American uh, countries that used to do a lot of business with Venezuela. When I say a lot, relatively speaking, they're small countries, but in terms of for them, it was an important sort of port of call for trade uh, with Venezuela. Their fear of being seen to be involved with any business dealings that involves PDVSA in particular and the problems that that could bring about in terms of their connections with the financial sector, with the banking sector in the US, has basically meant that they prefer not to get involved and to not trade with Venezuela. So even though these are not direct blockade, direct sanctions stopping this trade, for many companies and state-owned uh, enterprises have preferred to not get involved in this and have, of course, been pressured by the U.S. government to, to not be involved. So the sanctions are, are a multifaceted thing. As I said, everything from individual sanctions all the way to pressure that's been exerted or, or the threat that's been exerted on companies uh, doing dealings with Venezuela, that be careful with what you do because you may get caught up uh, in, in these traps that have been set up that basically stop uh, the Venezuelan uh, state oil company, the Venezuelan government, from doing the kind of basic financial transactions that any other government and corporation are allowed to do in the world today. And what are the sanctions from the EU? They're very similar. They're not quite, uh, they, they sort of not exact the same in the sense of they have targeted certain individuals. Some of them are the same as the individuals that have been targeted by the earth. Some of them are not. Their level of financial sanctions have not been as high. But the reality is that most of Venezuela's uh, current financial transactions have largely been operating through, through U.S. banks. So, it's, you know, that would have less of an... It wouldn't have as, a direct, as much of a direct impact as the level of the, the sanctions that the U.S. is currently implementing against Venezuela. Have the moves by the EU been because of pressure from the U.S.? I think there's been no doubt that it's been, you know, lobbied by the U.S. There's also been a very important lobby by Venezuela's opposition. And the reality is that the Venezuelan opposition, having, you know, for the last couple of years, tried through various different means to overthrow Maduro, everything from the, the violent street protests, insurrectional street protests. We saw 
year or two ago, through to elections, through to, well, just most recently, you know, assassination attempts against Maduro. They sort of, I think, recognise that internally in Venezuela, the balance of forces is very difficult for them. Uh, they're unable to really regain power by any means necessary within the country. So they've put a lot of effort into basically trying to diplomatically isolate Venezuela. And of course, when you know, generally when the media uh, talks about the, the international community, the international community generally just refers to the US and the European Union. And so that's where really the, the real emphasis has been from, from the opposition to get uh, these countries to sort of come out and speak against Venezuela, together with those countries in the region of, of Latin America that have sort of uh, also taken an oppositional uh, stance towards uh, Venezuela. This is, of course, a quite stark contrast to, for instance, the general approach that countries, for instance, in the, in the Caribbean who have a history of having to deal with US colonialism or French colonialism, quite a different uh, attitude has been taken from many of the African countries and many countries in Asia who have either preferred to say, well, this is not really our issue, this is an internal issue that should be resolved by the people of Venezuela, or in some cases come out openly in support of the government saying, look, you know, the, clearly there's an attempt to overthrow an elected government here, all pressure should be put to allow democracy to, to function in this country and to avoid any kind of violent overthrow or dictatorial sort of coup to occur in Venezuela. To what extent has China moved into the void? Look, China has sort of politically been quite quite quiet on Venezuela. It's always maintained that it defends Venezuelan sovereignty, non-interference, that, you know, the Venezuelans should, should decide what happens. We really, where China has been helping is in terms of the ongoing trade uh, with Venezuela. Uh, and the reality is, is that uh, in sort of loans or deals, oil deals that China has signed for many years to come, uh, have really been helping to sustain the, the government as, as it is now in terms of the financial revenue coming into the country in a context of where other sources are currently you know, being dried up or becoming very difficult to access. And so we see that even just a few months ago, the, the Chinese had given a quite large loan in terms of helping to boost production uh, in Pedro. So, of course, China has an interest in that, given that they've signed something like a 20-year contract to, to get oil from Venezuela. But in the current context, there's no doubt that Venezuela was able to uh, improve oil production, which is you know, certainly the lowest point it's been, or one of the lowest points it's been during the time that Nicolas Maduro and before that Hugo Chavez were government. If they're able to turn that situation around, increase oil production, increase uh, oil sales, uh, that would be a, a huge boost financially for the government and obviously be able to help it deal with some of the economic uh, problems that it's currently facing. What's stopping them increasing the oil production? Well, there's been a number of factors, and one of the biggest ones has been a huge level of corruption in, in the oil sector. This is a huge problem that they've been dealing with for quite a while now, uh, and has really become sort of exposed by a huge sort of arrests that have been carried out in, in the oil sector over, say, the last about eight months. So we've seen quite a number of middle management and including up to sort of top officials that have been in, in, involved in one way or another in, in corruption within the oil sector. So that's certainly been one big factor. And, of course, coming with corruption is also, you know, mis mismanagement of, of the sector as well. So uh, that, that's really been a, a, a big issue, uh, one that was really wasn't tackled for a while and is now only just now really sort of really coming to the surface. And so we'll have to see what, what sort of the, the outcomes of that is and how the oil industry is able to deal with that and turn around production levels. The new move by Maduro to, as he says, counter the economic war and 
the sanctions imposed by the US and its allies. It's called the Economic Recovery Plan. What does it contain? Well, it, look, it contains a whole variety of measures, everything from new banknotes, uh, essentially slashing five zeros off the, the currency. How does that work? Oh, it, Essentially, because of the, the hyperinflation that the, the, the country has been uh, facing, what, what you've had is a situation where the old banknotes of, you know, whether it was 100 or, or 500 bolivars, just, you know, almost became useless because prices were now going into the thousands and in some cases millions. And so new notes had to continuously be made up or, or, or alternatively, you know, to go and buy a newspaper, you had to take a wad of 100 notes. Because of those problems, the government said, well, look, we're basically going to start issuing new banknotes where we eliminate five zeros and essentially new prices are going to be put where five zeros are eliminated off, off those old prices. And it's something that the Venezuelan government has done before. Uh, Hugo Chavez and been done prior under, under other governments and, and it's been done in other countries as well, largely to sort of bring back price numbers to a reasonable level so that when you're going out to buy a a newspaper of milk and some bread you're not you're not calculating in the millions and, and rather you're just back to calculating in you know ones or tens or, or something like that uh, when, when you purchase but that's, that's just uh, perhaps a more superficial aspect of, of the measures the other sort of measures that have been talked about or have already begun to be implemented is everything from pegging this new currency to the petro uh, the petro being the sort of the cryptocurrency that the the government launched a few months ago, which it, it itself is pegged to the price of a barrel of oil. This is, you know, seen as a, a, an important move, although it's one that many economists are sort of reserving judgment on. They're not really sure how this is going to work and what the full implications are of essentially pegging a currency to a virtual currency. That will be interesting to see how that actually works or doesn't work. Uh, as I said, there's jury's still out on what the impacts will be of, of this particular move. We've also seen an attempt to deal with the huge problems in the currency control exchange system. You know, for the last what, 15 years, the, the state itself has had a, a monopoly on currency controls, and basically what that means is as all the dollars that come into the country or the vast majority come in via oil sales, it's the state that controls those U.S. dollars, and it, people have to apply to the state uh, to have access to those dollars. The state has generally set the currency rate at a rate that was nowhere near what the real market rate was, creating a huge black market for US dollars, creating a huge incentive towards corruption uh, of the system. So the government is trying to fix that up, yet to be exactly clear how it's going to do that. It's mentioned some ideas of bringing back the rate of currency exchange to somewhat like what the market rate is. How it does that, it's, it's, it's so far unclear. It's also implementing measures like, for instance, increasing the minimum wage by 30 times its current level in order to try to bring ordinary uh, people's salaries to, back to a level where they're able to sort of uh, you know, meet basic needs. So there's a whole, whole raft of measures like this uh, that are all being brought in with the real aim of trying to stabilise the economy and bring under control the sort of the hyperinflation that has been occurring in the country, which has just been uh, devastating our ordinary people's uh, salaries and you know, making daily life uh, almost unbearable. Are alarm bells ringing with the proposal to sell off assets? There's two things to, to note here. 
Firstly, is that some of the assets that are being talked about of selling off are sort of minor assets, things like you know some uh, local bus services, uh, things like that. Uh, there's certainly not been any talk of the, the larger main industries that have been under state control being privatised. But of course, when any any government wants to begin a process of privatisation, they generally start with the smaller ones and, and see how it goes. So it has certainly created an important discussion as to what does this mean? Is this just the first steps towards deeper privatisations or is it just the government trying to deal with a a, a very difficult situation as it stands now? I think the other part of the discussion is perhaps the broader discussion of exactly how does state ownership fit in into this process of trying to build uh, 21st century socialism in a context where you know, there are many examples of where state-owned companies have not been particularly successful. Of course, then the discussion is, well, if, if state-owned companies is, you know, what you, I suppose, could refer to as essentially state capitalist companies, i.e. companies that largely function as, as normal companies, except the only difference is that it's the state owns them, and so it's the state that gets to make use of the profits made by those companies as opposed to individual capitalists in the private sector. If they're not functioning very well, then, you know, what's the way to solve them? Of course, there are different perspectives, those that say, well, this means you've just got to put it back up into the private sector, where even though individuals may run it for profit, they have the profit motive to encourage them to make sure that it runs smoothly, whereas others have said, well, no, this is a reason to start giving communities and workers greater control over over these companies. So there's that aspect to, to the discussion as well, and that is that I think, you know, in general, many view one element of the current economic problem being government mismanagement of state industries. And so then the question being, or the, you know, question being debated is, well, what's the alternative to that? How, how do we best deal with a situation where perhaps the government has, or the state has shown itself to be inefficient when it comes to managing a number of these state enterprises? As you've pointed out, there have been and continue to be many attacks on Venezuela but on the 16th of August the Facebook page of Venezuela analysis was temporarily suspended. What's been the reaction to that and what can be done? Yeah well look it's exactly true and you know it should be noted that Venezuela analysis is probably one of the very very few English language websites that on the one hand is non-government uh, so it's not funded by the government. It's not a state outlet, like, for instance, Telesur, which was a Telesur English, which was another one of the sort of pages that was taken down by Facebook. But unlike Telesur English, Venezuela analysis is, is in no way uh, linked to the government. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's also not linked to the opposition. And so what, what it really aims to do is provide a voice from the social movements, from the left, from the radical left, including from the critical left, those that are from the left but criticise the government for its actions or, or inactions. So in that sense, you know, playing a really vital role in trying to get some information out that really anyone who wants to know about Venezuela should at minimum be interested in, in finding out about whether you, you, know, you see as your only source, you know, obviously there, there, there'd be other sources, but it, it provides a unique source for English language readers of what's going on in Venezuela and what we're seeing is that that was taken down. And it wasn't the first time Venezuela analysis has had these issues. And I suppose it, it really does show the, uh, you know, really exposes the limitations of uh, so-called social media where you're sort of led to believe that it's, it's this means that you can, you know, social media allows you to be the, the media. But, of course, these are still run by corporations. 
and those corporations have their vested interests. So we've seen, you know, this being the case not just with Venezuela analysis, but with a number of other, you know, news sources that have been, if not taken offline, certainly downgraded and made a lot harder to, to find on Facebook, uh, you know, on, on Twitter, on, on Google as well. We've seen, you know, Google searches being modified to basically exclude dissenting voices and particularly progressive left-wing voices in order to prioritise, you know, the mainstream media, um, the ones that just basically pump out the, the same line that many of these corporations uh, endorse and, and support. So this is a big issue. So obviously being able to speak on things like community radio for SCRs is obviously really important to be able to get out some of this news, some of these, these alternatives, because we're, we're seeing the limitations of social media as, as an alternative uh, source or ability to get out an alternative view on, on what's happening in the world today. Finally, Fred, the assassination attempt. Is the first one on Madero's life? Uh, this is certainly the first one in, this, in terms of, you know, sort of having been actually sort of carried out. Obviously, it was unsuccessful. There have been talks of and arrests made of plots to assassinate Duro and, and Chavez before then, but none of, none of these had really got to beyond that. This was certainly the most the most public sort of and closest that, that, that sort of uh, attempt has come to an, an assassination. And it really, you know, it's a real worrying sign, not not just the, the assassination attempt, but, but also the, just the, the response, both, you know, from the media, uh, the mainstream media, and, and you know, as we were saying before, the so-called international community, which was largely to ignore or deny that it even happened or, question you know whether this was just not you know wasn't just a, a government ploy uh, rather than sort of you know bringing pressure to bear to say well look hang on this this, this is certainly well, no matter what one may think of venezuela of the government of what's going on there the last thing any country needs is you know assassination attempts and the kind of chaos that, that can start to bring and and and, and the violence and deaths uh, that can start to you know occur as a result of these sort of actions but you know rather than any condemnation of these actions, what we saw was just a, you know, blame the government and use this to once again attack the government. So I think this is really important. You know, I think it shows a difficult situation Venezuela's in. It will be interesting to see what these new economic measures, what impact they have in helping to stabilise the situation. There are some positive signs and there are also some big question marks and big clouds over whether some of these measures will work but I think also what many believe is that there are still some deeper problems as I mentioned of things like corruption sectors of private capital who want to continue to profit from the current economic crisis wanting to work to undermine the government uh, unless these deeper issues are dealt with then it's you know, unlikely that the situation is going to get a lot better in the short to medium term. And that's the whole problem all along with the Bolivarian revolution isn't it that the government has never had complete control of businesses yeah. and the economy. This is the, the irony of the right-wing media who say, oh, well, this just shows socialism doesn't work and this is why you need the private enterprise and why you need the free market. Well, the reality is that both private enterprise and the free market continue to exist in Venezuela. Like, certainly we can discuss that there have been some nationalisations that have been taking place of certain private enterprises and we could talk about certain regulations that have been put on certain prices of certain products. But in large part, you go to Venezuela and it's, you know, 
largely private capital. It is the largest part of the, the economy. Um, it's largely a free market economy. And those private interests have used that power that they have in, in that market to really try to undermine both the economy and through that you know, undermine the government. So far from uh, being a failure of uh, too much socialism, maybe it's a failure of not enough socialism, um, allowing too much capitalism to continue to exist in, in Venezuela and the capitalists being able to use that system against that situation against the government. Talk to you again. Okay, cheers. Thank you. I've been speaking to Fred Fuentes. He's a, a journalist, an author and an activist for Latin America, South America and Central America. It's now 4.39 and if you'd like to have a look at the page, Venezuela Analysis, A-N-A-L-Y-S-A-S, to find out a bit more about what is really happening in Venezuela. 3CR is in the running to receive nearly $100,000 to help us retrofit our station for greater accessibility. That means better handrails, doors, taps, ramps. And more to provide improved access for everyone. But we need your support. Do you live within 5 kilometres of the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy? If you do, you're eligible to vote for us. Our project is part of the Victorian State Government's Pick My Project scheme. And you can jump online and vote 3CR's Community Radio Accessibility Project by going to 3cr.org.au. It's only with your vote that we can receive this important funding to make our station more accessible. Now with the latest work from IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australian Network, with activities and information with Bevan Ramsden from IPAN, speaking about the Give Them the Boot campaign. This leaflet says, if you agree with what we're saying, leave an old pair of boots you don't want out by your letterbox. We're going to collect them, put them all together and deliver them to the Defence Department with appropriate message and a rally sometimes later this year and early next year. That's very close to my heart, this Give Them the Boot campaign, Jen. What sort of a reaction have you had so far? We've got some boots. I wouldn't say we had an enormous lot of boots collected, but it's one of these basic campaigns. When you're working against both major political parties, both of them are sort of joined at the hip with Trump. The ALP foreign policy is supporting the US-Australia alliance, the Marines and Darwin, etc., etc., just the same as the coalition's policy in that respect. That has a major influence on people's thinking, and particularly with newspapers that just follow along with what they say. So it's pretty grassroots stuff to take a different stand completely and say this alliance and these Marines and the bases in Australia are not helping to defend us. They're leading us into war. They're making us a target. The Yanks are involved in hostile acts. They see Australia as part of the Yank military. We attract the, uh, attract the enemy and we shouldn't have such enemies. The work of explaining this is very grassroots. I mean, I I go around talking to some ALP branches, peace groups, spoke to the Newcastle Trades Hall Council, and got responses from these places, but it's penetrating out there into the community, and what we've got up to date is this letterboxing campaign. It's an education campaign, isn't it? Because people just do not know, or if they did know, they didn't quite understand what it meant. That's exactly right, Jan, and... um, you know, you're starting off from square one against all that backdrop of 
an alliance which the main political parties say defends Australia or doesn't defend Australia at all, it leads us into trouble. I'm one, like the IPAN is, we believe that Australia can stand on its own feet. We don't have to kowtow to a colonial master, which used to be Mother Britain, now it's Uncle Sam. We're 25 million people, we, we have every ability to defend, but who are we defending against? Is there really any threats to defend against? Our enemies seem to be associated with the United States because they make enemies and we're associated with them. I look forward to the day when Australia can take an independent stance, distance itself from the US alliance and the Americans, make our own way in the world, a peaceful way and a friendly way and have good trading relationships with all nations and seek to contribute as a good corporate citizen in this world and not be dragging along behind what I think is one of the big, world's biggest bullies, that's the United States, violent nation. Well, they say, well, we share their values. I hope we don't share a lot of the values they do have. They're not values I think we should share. What do you think? <laughs> I couldn't agree with more. Are we talking about armed neutrality or are we talking about something else? Oh, that's interesting. Two words you bring up there. Well, I think being neutral has some traction at the moment because if we were an independent country and could be neutral as far as China and, and the United States is concerned and keep out of if they want to have a bit of a stoush, we don't want to be involved. We do want to be friendly with both countries. We have trading relations with both countries and we should maintain those. But keep out of any... They say they having, want to have a bit of a confrontation or a war. Let's not be involved with that. So to that extent, I think we should be neutral, yeah, in that sort of situation. And if you're going to be neutral... You have to be able to defend yourself, so it's armed neutrality, but it's a different sort of arming if, you, if you're going to defend the sovereignty of Australia. I mean, they have to reassess uh, the realistic threats and how would you go about it. You don't necessarily have to buy F-35s at enormous cost because they happen to link in well with the American Air Force. It would be a different approach entirely. And the aim is to be at peace, not to be at war and to defend the country, not to go out of the country to others and join in a war against Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc., etc., you know what I mean? And to get rid of those bases, I mean, there's not just one base, like you said, Pine Gap, there's, and the one at um, Darwin or near Darwin. They're in other places as well. Correct. And you can't be neutral if you have foreign bases on your soil. And you're absolutely right. We need to clear. We can't have Pine Gap or the northwest communication base which communicates with submarines and sends the trigger signal to submarines to release their missiles. That's another base in Australia and these, this new forced posture agreement for Northern Territory and the US Marines. There's a number of others too. But yes, to be independent, to take a neutral stance on issues where we think that's the place to be, you've got to be independent and not have foreign bases on your soil or foreign troops on your soil. That's a big issue for Australia, and it's the big one if we're going to move forward into that sort of era and grow up and stand up on our own feet, then we have to address the issue of foreign military bases. Hiroshima, or Hiroshima, I'm not quite sure. Different people pronounce it in a different way. 8th of August, that passed without much notice, didn't it? It does these days, but there are groups who, who certainly um, have drawn attention to it. I mean, there was... I think in every capital city there was some sort of rally drawing attention to that terrible situation that occurred back in 1945. The mainstream ignored it? mainstream ignored it. We, we had a rally in Newcastle. I'm sure there was one in Melbourne. A motion was passed, of course, at the 
the meeting that the government should sign this treaty, the UN Treaty to Ban Nuclear Weapons. I mean, it's a major thing that ICANN have managed to um, achieve. They got the Nobel Peace Prize for it. And the Australian government is very rather embarrassed about that, but the, the Australian body, I think ICANN started in Australia, refused to sign the, the treaty um, because the Americans say don't sign it. And uh, we followed the Americans and, uh, on this. Now, I think 60 countries have already signed. The call is now... I believe ICANN is having a bicycle ride from Melbourne to Canberra in September carrying the Nobel Peace Prize and having a big rally at Parliament House when they finish the bike ride with the call to sign the treaty. And I think busloads are going from Melbourne and Sydney. I figured a chance, Jan, to, to advertise it over the 3CR. I'm sure they'd be happy to try and get a big crowd at, in Canberra for that, uh, that rally. And that's one of the peace issues that we really have to prosecute hard today to get Australia to sign it. I mean, it's clearly... We want a world without nuclear weapons. There's no reason why Australia shouldn't be up there with those countries and signing it. Yes, the bike rides are getting a good send-off here on the 2nd of September in the morning when that's the first day of their three-week trip to Canberra. And not all the riders are going the whole way. Some are dropping out, dropping in. Others are joining along the way. Oh, that's good. I best 3CR will cover that a bit. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, we hope that goes, that goes well, but there's still a lot of work to be done. For example, in the ALP, we, the motion we passed at Newcastle was sent to Bill Shorten and Penny Wong too, and it said Newcastle people calling for the, the uh, treaty to be signed by Australia, but what is the ALP policy on this? If you were in government, would you sign it? Very important question. He did say, Shorten did say that he was thinking about it, didn't he? I don't, haven't heard that. And I'm hoping we get an answer from our letter to see what their current current policy is. I did hear a whisper that when they have their conference in November, that ICANN has done a lot of lobbying and they're hoping to have the issue debated in the National ALP conference in November. And that would be a step forward if the, the alternative party, opposition party, um, took a stand that if they got into power they'd sign. That would be a step forward. I can't see Turnbull and co taking that step at the moment, unfortunately. Looking to Timor-Leste, of course, when you were agitating to get CR up and going back in the early 70s, Timor-Leste Timor was a big issue, wasn't it? It was a big issue. Yeah, in our last um, publication, IPAN publication, we, we published a, a statement uh, by the movement against the occupation of the Timor Sea. M-K-O-T-T, and they're protesting about Australia's prosecution of Witness K and his lawyer. And I'll just read a little bit of it, Jan. Their press releases is from the movement occupation of the Timor Sea. It is with greatest astonishment and sadness that on the 28th of June, the movement contra Okapazi Timor, the movement against the occupation of the Timor Sea, learned that the Australian lawyer... Bernard Cullery and the Australian former intelligence officer, Witness K, have both been charged for revealing the Australian government spying on the Timor-Leste's cabinet room during negotiations for offshore natural resources in the Timor Sea between Timor-Leste and Australia in 2004. MPOTT 
strongly condemns the charges against lawyer Collery and witness K as being politically motivated, which the movement regards as an attack on the freedom of expression, an attack on democracy by the Australian government. This act on the part of the Australian government also shows the government will use anything to pursue Australia's commercial interests in relation with its neighbours, even if it violates international law to deprive one of its poorest neighbours and will crash on anyone who, or anything that stands on its way. Well, it was a disgusting thing that was done to try and um, undermine that negotiations and take away from the Timorese access to important resources in the sea. Yeah, we published that in our, our last uh, newsletter, Jan. You just wonder how low Australian governments can go. They've been condemned internationally for doing this, even if it yeah. doesn't go ahead, the fact that they prosecute it to this stage. Exactly. Covering up for its nasty actions, which is were illegal. And um, I think that embraced both governments, both ALP and uh, coalition governments were across that situation. Both took the same stand in relation to that witness K. And, uh, yeah, it shows that, well, that shows the, the strength of corporate interests are only interested in exploiting those resources to the disadvantage of a poor nation. There's no, moral, no morality there, is there? Well, that's all I have for today. Is there any other issue that you'd like to talk about for a few more minutes? Have you uh, drawn attention on the station yet to the protests against Trump that are being planned for November? I don't think he's coming to Melbourne, is, is he? No, well, that might mitigate against it then, although people might go from Melbourne to wherever it's up to Canberra to where the protests would be. I'm sure. I know in, in Sydney there was certainly a coalition formed to plan. Um, it's believed that Trump will be visiting Australia in, in November and a good time to draw attention to a lot of issues that the Americans are involved in. For our point of view, the issue of Marines and Darwin and the forced posture agreement, that people have a lot of concerns about Trump and um, I'm sure they'll be voiced in protest at that time. If people would like to become part of IPAN... Well, the best thing is to go to the IPAN website, ipan.org.au. That's the simplest to remember. IPAN, I-P-A-N, ipan.org.au, and uh, all the details are there to be involved and joined up. We'd hope that, uh, yeah, some of your listeners might like to, particularly this leatherboxing campaign, Jan, to, to take the issue of the Force Posture Agreement and U.S. Marines in Darwin and the implications of that to get that out to the public, to provide a bit of educational material in a grassroots way by letterboxing. And if they got in touch with you or whatever, I'm sure you'd pass their details on to, uh, on to IPAN to Shirley. All right, well, that's great. And um, just to let you know again that we're going absolutely great guns here in Melbourne. Yes, yeah. I'm so pleased that Tracy uh, is alive and kicking and kicking well. And... Um, Thank you very much for, in, for interviewing me on 3CR. Bye-bye. And that's Brevin Ranston, who was one of the original people back in the early 70s who helped to set up 3CR. He's now living in Newcastle. And just on that visit by Trump, IPAN is having a meeting this Thursday, the 30th. That's in two days' time at Trades Hall. It's level four the cream building at the back and it's at six o'clock and there were a couple of issues to be discussed at that meeting 
but Trump's visit to Australia and calls for independent foreign policy and keep Australia out of US wars is on the agenda for that. So if you'd like to learn more about the campaign for Trump's visit in November, the date is Thursday, the 30th of August, for 6pm at 6pm at Trades Hall, Level 4, Cream Building at the back. International Overdose Awareness Day is held annually on the 31st of August. It is a day to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related death and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends of those who have died. With the ongoing stigmatisation and criminalisation of people who consume drugs in Australia, International Overdose Awareness Day is as important as ever. This year, 3CR will be broadcasting a special half-hour program at 10am on Friday the 31st of August. Join us for a panel discussion looking at current efforts to reduce the tragic loss of life from overdose in Australia. Experts will offer perspectives from the fields of research, service delivery and most importantly, peers in the community. Earlier this month, the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal VCAT rejected a challenge by the Western Region Environment Centre to a major expansion of the Wyndham City Council massive Werribee landfill. I spoke with the centre's director, Harry Van Morst, and asked Harry first to identify his group's interest and work in this area. The Western Region Environment Centre was set up about 15 years ago, or more than that now, after the Victoria's campaign to stop the toxic dump being built in Werribee. And since then we've been involved with a whole range of issues, but they include other landfills and attempts to build toxic dumps elsewhere. We've got quite a history of opposing the idea of landfills rather than prevention is a major thing, of course, of waste, but also effective management of it, which is not putting it in the ground. Um, you know, the resource can generally be utilised elsewhere. So that's, that's been a camp, part of our campaigning over the last 20 years. Well, just looking at the, the tip at, from Wyndham City Council's tip at Werribee, go back a few steps. What is the present situation at the tip? present situation is that it has risen about 24 metres above the surrounding ground, which is one of the issues concerning the local community, and it's had odour complaints, non-compliances, and a range of things that, that happen with virtually all landfills. They're very hard to manage to the level of, um, of well, environmental amenity protection and so on, uh, that people would, would like. It's inevitable that you get odours, uh, you get some contamination of the groundwater, uh, and it's a question of degree, not whether it will happen or not. So that, that's a problem with the one at uh, Werribee, it's a problem with the one at Ravenall, uh, and any of the others. So at this stage what has happened is that um, the council has given itself a permit to go 24 metres above ground and to go for the next, well, for whatever time. It's, it's zoned uh, in such a way that the council has full control over whether it remains as a landfill as the quarry progresses or whether it's turned into something else. Council have decided very clearly that it is 
an indefinite permit to continue to operate, and that's one of the issues we're concerned with because government policy, of course, is to see landfill as a last resort, not as a 50-year first preference option almost, as it's become. And much of what comes into that tip isn't from the local area? No. About 80% of the waste that goes into that waste mountain comes from other suburbs and areas, including uh, metropolitan Melbourne, uh, inner Melbourne, Yarra, I think those, and uh, a number of other councils, about 11 other councils contribute to that, that waste, many of whom would go elsewhere if there were better and more sustainable resource recovery uh, facilities. But these won't occur until you start to stop the amount of waste going to landfill. Did the local council put their hand up and say, yes, we'll take your rubbish? Is that how it happened? There's a group, uh, the Metropolitan Waste Management Group, as it was known, is now called the Metropolitan Resource and Resource Recovery Group, but there's not much resource recovery uh, initiative being taken. And that group is charged with the responsibility of scheduling landfill, and they, in conjunction with Sustainability Victoria, have decided that they will do so with several major massive waste mountains rather than spreading it around uh, in other quarries and so on. So new landfills can't be opened at this point of time. Instead, the existing landfills will rise to the heavens as it's happening in, in Werribee and in Ravenhall at the moment. So there, there are real community issues that go with that, issues of, of visual amenity, but particularly odour and uh, risk factors with uh, waste uh, water, contaminated groundwater and so on as a result. And what the Metropolitan Waste Management Group does is to help organise the contracts and, and schedule all of these over time. And what I think we're seeing at the moment is an attempt by landfills to monopolise access to the waste because they see it as a resource, of course, to put it in a hole in the ground. And they're trying to monopolise that so that the uh, waste to energy options and the, the more expensive recycling options that we should be enga engaging in don't get a foothold. That's one of the reasons we've strongly opposed these long-term uh, works approvals that the EPA has now been giving. You've alluded to some of your opposition, but can you just briefly summarise your arguments at VCAT? <clears throat> yeah, the arguments we raised at VCAT involved a number of things. There were some technical arguments about inadequate um, modelling and um, you know, lack of evidence for a lot of assertions made both by EPA and by uh, Wyndham Council. Leaving those aside for the moment, though, the important ones, critical ones, are the ones to do with the length of approval, which is, what, 26 years, which really is for a whole generation in effect, instead of the five-year approvals, which would then allow a new works approval to be provided. EPA, of course, didn't agree with that, with us that, on that. So the, the length of time, the fact that it's locking in landfill as opposed to leaving it sufficiently reviewable over time with, the communi with community involvement, because the moment they give this 26-year works approval, the rest of the community is basically powerless, legally powerless, to take them up. Uh, or to uh, appeal or whatever. There are no appeals against works approvals once they've been through VCAT the first time. So from then on, it would just be open slather for, for the uh, landfill operators. 
that's the one of the main things. The other is simply the, the fact that to, it gives the wrong message, as well as allowing monopolisation of uh, the waste stream, gives the wrong message to the whole waste industry, where the, the, the major uh, emphasis increasingly, particularly after China's uh, efforts to stop uh, our plastics being exported there, the, the aim that we see is necessary is to limit landfill as much as possible and that means holding them to account every five years rather than giving them 26-year extensions. The other thing we're concerned about is the height and the quantities going in, the quantity that will be going in both at Ravenhall and at uh, Werribee will be over a million within the next 15 to 20 years, over a million tonnes a year. That in turn means the risk goes up significantly it means the, the mountain goes up significantly. It's just getting getting out of hand, and it's a ridiculous situation as far as we can see. But VCAT, unfortunately, didn't didn't agree with us, not surprisingly. The issue with waste management at the moment is that it should be, not waste management, it should be resource recovery primarily. And we need to do a lot more on avoidance as well as recycling, reuse, all of those things, which we're not doing nearly as well as other countries. And the re resource recovery uh, should ensure that, that it has the support of, well, it needs the support of government, which is not really getting, although that's beginning to change. And it needs the support of government agencies, such as the Metropolitan Waste Management Group. And if they were to do that, then the one thing they wouldn't be doing is setting up uh, systems where they support the landfill operators in VCAT against the community as they did here and as they've done at Ravenhall and as they've done everywhere else over the last few years. Who has the responsibility to monitor the air and water quality from this tip? The responsibility, I mean, the responsibility lies obviously with the operator uh, amongst other things but EPA are the ones who are supposed to organise and enforce the monitoring and you know, enforce any breaches, that is done up to a point, but it's not done very well, and it's one of the reasons for the uh, inquiry into the EPA uh, year before last. And, and things are changing there because the new act that was thankfully passed a couple of weeks ago will ensure that there's more requirements of EPA to effectively monitor and to ensure that monitoring is, is, is done honestly as opposed to some of the self-porting problems that we've had with uh, the big landfills. There is some of that being done, but the, one of the problems is that there's not a lot of independent stuff there. Uh, and the EPA is not independent. It's a bureaucracy that has to, in a sense, meet the needs of the uh, landfill operators or the waste management operators, as well as uh, government policies and requirements uh, within a funding base that, really wasn't up to scratch for a long time. So we, we see that there's 400 million, or nearly 500 million now, sitting in the bank, government's coffers, that should have been used to do some of these alternative resource recovery options, and that hasn't been done. So we're a long way behind the eight ball. Thankfully, China pointed that out to us by not accepting our plastics anymore. So the, it's an industry in transition, and... Again, when you're doing that, the last thing you should be doing is having very lengthy uh, works approvals. But there are also other issues with it that, that occurred that um, where VCAT simply didn't effectively 
look at the evidence and the risks that were involved. They simply took for granted the things that the EPA and council told them. And the EPA basically supported the council word for word. You know, in that sense, we're back to square one. Where did the 26-year figure come from? The 26-year figure came from the works approval that council gave the EPA and the EPA simply ticked the box to just accepted that 26 years was appropriate despite the fact that we were gave them quite a number of arguments as to why that wasn't the best way to go given that it's an, uh, an industry in transition things are going to change and they need to change fundamentally they shouldn't be locking in a landfill for that long now they argued that they could always change it later but we don't believe that that's likely if they approve it now there are all sorts of issues including legal and financial issues that will make it unlikely that that will be rescinded regardless of what else is happening because the issues about whether we need it or not which uh, have to be established will be established now they will now say that we need it for at least 26 years the same issue is being fought uh, with Ravenhall so it's all being locked in and once that happens it's going to be very difficult to unlock it unless the government decides it's time to unlock it given that 26 years also excludes a third party rights to question it because you can't question uh, or legally challenge the licensing process. That might change now that the Act is being changed. Uh, it means, though, that the community is basically excluded from any legal challenge to future cells being opened and started up. The 26 years then becomes locked in totally uh, without any effective right of appeal. Now, we're working to get that changed, but at the moment, that simply would have been easier if they'd simply done what we did or agreed with, with our, our proposals, which was basically that the two things we, we want, really. One is that the landfill not go above ground, that it be a landfill and not a waste mount. And secondly, that the works approval be for five years, not, you know, 45 years or whatever. And the reason for that, obviously, is that that means every five years whether there is a, still a need for landfill instead of using resource recovery technologies, including waste to energy, that means it could be properly assessed with effective community rights to be involved in that process for each works approval. And they didn't do that. Instead, they allowed all the issues of future licensing to be determined basically over the 45 years by the EPA and the operator land for operator the community is excluded from all of that and we're saying that they're just that's not a proper works approval you're approving all the design issues at a later date if the design issues is what the works are all about how well it's done how high it goes all those things basically the decision it was a rubber stamping of um what the epa said and in turn that was a rubber stamping of what council wanted to a very large extent so we're pretty angry about that. I've spoken to a number of people over the years who say that they're dissatisfied with VCAT, that the community or the small people don't get a go, that it's they, they might get a, a, a tiny reduction in whatever they're fighting for, but that's it. Were you yep. surprised at all at, at this outcome? Did you expect it to be a little bit better than what it is? I was uh, not surprised at the overall outcome. I thought we might get at least a reduction in time. Even Ravenhall got that 
when they went, but that was a planning panel, not, not EPA, I, I thought, you know, they would at least agree that uh, there's no point, no need to give them till 19, uh, 2043 or 2045, whichever it happens to be now. So, yeah, that was disappointing, but we never expected, nor did we ever intend to have the, the landfill closed. One of the things that, that when you read the VCAT decision is it seems to be based on the assumption that we were arguing that there shouldn't be a landfill there. We weren't arguing that. We were saying it shouldn't go above ground because that, in fact, makes it far more of a, a liability to local amenity as well as making it much larger than it needs to be. Uh, a lot of it was said on the basis that if we were to succeed and the works approval didn't go ahead, that therefore you know, all these suburbs would be left without a place to put their waste. And that's simply not true. The question is, do we want to do it for the next 25 years or can we do it for the next five years and then decide again whether we want another five years? That that was really what the argument was largely about. Uh, as far as the time of it goes, yet that was not addressed at all in that form, format by VCAT. That was one that I thought they would do much better with. There are a lot of things in the VCAT decision that I think are, are very questionable and a couple of factual mistakes that they've got in there too. For instance, they say at one stage, we place considerable weight on the fact that this landfill has successfully operated since 2008. It was only in 2012 that this occurred, not 2008. Yet he placed considerable weight on this fact. I don't know what they're talking about, frankly, or where they got the 2008 from. There were inaccuracies of that kind and there were statements about things that we weren't in any sense suggesting, namely that it'd be closed immediately. All we wanted was not to go above ground and not to give us 25-year approval. How does this decision, Harry, fit in with the government policy aimed at reducing waste and encouraging recycling? That was one of our big arguments, that it was contrary to government policy. Government policy is to make landfill a last resort option and to recover as much resources from what we call waste as possible. Uh, as part of that, the intent is to... You know, there's a waste hierarchy that is actually legally binding, supposedly, where, in fact, you know, avoidance, reuse, recycle, and things like waste to energy, any other resource recovery options, are more important and should take priority over landfilling, which is the last resort. Yet, in fact, we find that a very large proportion of our waste and so on is either put into landfill as a first resort or collected and sent overseas where the real recycling occurs. There's only a a small proportion of uh, total recycling that's happening here. And that's partly because landfill is cheap, easy, relatively speaking, despite its uh, bad impact on resources and and the environment. We argued, and EPA ignored, and VCAT then cited EPA, that in fact this was contrary, giving a such a lengthy approval for landfill was actually contrary to that sort of policy that you're giving the wrong message, uh, you're allowing the monopolisation of, in inverted commas, waste or resources to uh, the landfill industry because that's what the Metropolitan Waste Management Group does. It schedules waste management uh, landfills. Can I concentrate on the community for a little bit? The 
the people who live close by, were they already residents before this TIP came into operation? And are there any plans for new housing developments in the near areas? Uh, yeah, there aren't many houses within the 500 metre buffer zone, so there's only one. There are a number of houses in the Oda area, which is more than 500 metres. The Oda has been known to travel about three, four kilometres uh, on some bad days. At the moment, unlike Ravenhall, where there are hundreds and hundreds of houses within the Oda reach, with Werribee one, there's only a few, but there's a major estate, possibly other estates, that are going to be built nearby. So, again, even though TIP is already there, uh, the reality is that most people don't realise it until they smell it or see it, and so people are buying houses up quite a bit there. And it's the same around Gravenhall again, where there's major housing expected to be within the, the odour of the TIP. So it's amenity in terms of odour and potential health impacts from gases, uh, gas emissions is going to get worse as both the, the mounds get bigger and you get a million plus tonnes per year that are 500,000 now or a bit more. That's going to be a major problem. And the other thing is, of course, that there's the visual amenity that a lot of people um, get quite upset, for instance, in Werribee where they used to have a a view and some of them bought their houses for the view they had of uh, the Yuyangs and the um, mountain ranges and so on across a very flat plain that's suddenly broken up by this mountain of waste which usually isn't very pretty anyway and so it's, it's a question of, of you know we can do a lot better than that overseas they are doing a lot better than that so why aren't we keeping up with international developments instead of allowing some people to make decisions to impact on others uh, in this way without second thought, really. What is happening overseas? Recycling and waste to energy options are far better implemented. There's a lot more work being done to properly separate the various waste streams, particularly plastics and so on, different plastics, whereas here there's very little real uh, effort put into that compared with what's happening elsewhere. There's effort put in by the households at the household level, although that's not nearly as intense as it is in countries like Japan or most of Europe, but there's very little put in in terms of investment in the more mechanical sorting infrastructure that's available overseas where they can sort them very far better, therefore get a far better waste stream or recycling stream of waste, which they can then readily you know, make some money out of, I guess. It is an issue where you need a certain amount of capital to set it up, but you make that money back over time, which is what I think should be happening here far more. As well as that, they have substantial what are called waste-to-energy facilities of different kinds. That doesn't mean incineration necessarily. There's a big thing going on quite rightly about the risk of incineration as an alternative to putting it into the thing because you can generate energy from it. It can be used as instead of coal to make electricity and that's being done overseas. Sweden is totally dependent on it now and doesn't use coal at all hardly as far as we know. So there are those options and overseas that's where their waste management's going. Here we're still stuck with waste mountains. The alternatives are not going to get get a lot of support 
from investors if, in fact, we give everybody give the uh, landfill contracts and uh, approvals and so on that go for 20 years or more. These contractors must be making a tidy profit. Yeah, Brindham City Council makes $14 million a year, roughly, out of um, all this waste, which they claim, of course, they put back into the community, and I'm sure they do. But um, it's at a cost. Uh, it's a cost that the, the local community, well, 2,000, more than 2,000 people petitioned the council not to go above ground. And, of course, their argument was if we don't go above ground, we don't make the $14 million profit. So the community, but the community was willing to say, well, don't make that profit, please. We prefer to see it deal with the waste a lot, lot better. But the reality is that the waste to energy options make the same sort of profit, depending on the, on state policy, on things like uh, electricity infrastructure and uh, electricity uh, fees, rather electricity costs. If they can sell their electricity at a decent price, just like the coal power stations do that in fact they'll make a profit out of it too. That can be done, but it needs to be done very carefully, as the fund oversees. The incineration option is one, but uh, some of the other gasification methods of, of dealing with it are far safer. Finally, Harry, where does the community go from here? The Werribee community is going to work fairly hard with, with various government agencies and others. The intent is to try and get the politicians to realise that yeah, they're just not succeeding. I mean, they're going to fail with their hopes of uh, having a significant waste-to-energy alternative uh, layer of, of management and resource recovery. They're going to fail in that, that policy unless they start to do something seriously about it. Hopefully some of them will listen. It is an election year, after all. So we're hoping to put more pressure on there. We've got a petition going on change.org, and hopefully that'll start to take off. It's become clear that the, the legal options are non-existent for us. I mean, it cost us uh, $30,000 just to be able to um, launch and run the uh, campaign. And that was with our lawyers uh, doing the pro bono. Council spent 10 times that much, I'm sure, but they could at least use ratepayers' money. We had to collect it. And, and that, that's part of the problem with VCAT now. It's very expensive to go to. Yeah, we're glad we did, even though we didn't win. All of it. We got a few concessions. Now the aim is to make sure that the politicians do their job, make their policy real rather than just having it as uh, words on paper, like so many policies are. Okay, thanks, Harry. Okay. And that was Harry Van Morse, who's the director of the Western Region Environment Centre. Out in the Western suburbs, of course, it's 522. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. It would be difficult to find a country which calls itself a democracy today, which routinely detains, arrests and imprisons children. Hundreds each year, 
between 500 and 700 children in military detention, children as young as 12, and it is believed that even younger children, upwards of six, are detained. But there is such a country, and it's Israel, and treating children in this way is seen as a deliberate policy to traumatise and silence whole communities in the occupied West Bank. Today I'm speaking with two advocates for the rights of Palestinian children living under military occupation. Palestinian Salwa Babus and Australian lawyer Gerald Horton who are in Australia to talk about the situations of the children, their families and their communities. Salwa and Gerald, the organisation you co-founded and now direct is the Military Court Watch. But can I first ask you both about your background, which led you to later establish this watch? I'm a Palestinian citizen of Israel. I was born in Nazareth. My father was an Anglican uh, priest in the church. As a young priest, he came to the region when he was a young priest, and because the Christian community was totally devastated as a result of the war, thousands of people emigrated, and he remained there all his life. And as a result, we moved around with him. The church moved him around. So we started in Nazareth, then moved to Haifa, and then moved to Nablus in the occupied territories. And that was my first encounter with occupation as a young uh, child, having lived in Haifa for a long time. You know, we had Jewish neighbors, Palestinians. You know, it was kind of normal, not 100%, but it wasn't a life-threatening situation for me. So moving to Nablus, I realized it is a life-threatening situation. My next-door neighbor was, uh, and friend uh, was shot by Israeli soldiers, and that affected me. And it made me realize how easy it is for young people to be radicalized as a result of their experiences. And from that moment on, I decided I wanted to do something about occupation and the injustice and the unfairness of it all. I spent um, many years working at a manufacturing operation in the West Bank, helping women earn money. And as a result, we succeeded to export high-quality women's lingerie from the occupied territories to the rest of the world, including Harrods, including Saks Fifth Avenue in America. We played a key role in uh, developing a separate customs code for the occupied territories. So we told the Americans we want to export legally, so please tell us what to say on the labels. And they came back after months of... Uh, discussing it, and they said, okay, you can say made in the Israeli occupied West Bank, which was fine, except that the labor was sometimes bigger than the lingerie item itself. (laughs) And then I spent uh, time working at a women's organization, basically um, highlighting the impact of occupation on women, uh, night raids, house demolitions, and so on. And then I became co-founder of Military Court Watch, which I am now at until today. I'm half English, half Australian. I was born in Sydney, and then... um My parents moved to Hong Kong and I grew up in England. Um, And then after school, I came back to Australia, to Sydney, practiced uh, at the New South Wales Bar um, in Sydney, mainly commercial practice for about eight years. Then I did some voluntary work. I went over for three months to Palestine and did some uh, voluntary work on prisoners' issues and came back and forth a little bit. And now I've I've been there 10 years, based in Jerusalem and, and Ramallah. And I've worked on the issue of children, Palestinian children, prosecuted in the military courts for 10 years. And about five years ago, Sawa and I co-founded Military Court Watch with um, 12 other individuals, mainly lawyers, uh, Israeli, Palestinian, European lawyers. 
And we focus just on one issue, the, the prosecution of Palestinian children in mili- military courts. Well, how does it happen? How do children get to those courts? What's the extent of the, the, the chain for them to end up in a prison? I know they don't all end in the prison, but a lot of them do. Yeah, that's a good question. One of the really striking features, I think, with the evidence we collect, because as an organisation, that's one thing we do, is we collect a lot of evidence from these children each year. And the one feature that has really struck us as significant is where do these children live who end up in these military courts? And what we found was 97% of these children live and are arrested within 800 metres of a settlement. The more time you spend doing this work, the more you realise that's not coincidental. And it is in many ways a product of the settlement project. And I think to understand it, it helps to put yourself in the shoes of an Israeli military commander and ask yourself what mission has he been given. And essentially the mission is, given to him by the politicians in Israel, is he has to guarantee the protection of all those Israeli settlers living in illegal settlements in the West Bank, of which, uh, not including Jerusalem, there are now 400,000 of them living amongst 3 million Palestinians in the West Bank. And that's a pretty difficult military task. A mark, I think, of how successful that military commander has been over the years is, according to the U.S. State Department, in 2012, not a single settler was killed in the West Bank. The nine-year average fatality rate for settlers in the West Bank is 5.6 settlers killed on average um, each year in the West Bank for the last nine years. Now, not to trivialize those deaths, more people get killed on the roads. And the issue or the question that's raised in our minds and where our work comes in is, what are some of the tactics that the Israeli military are employing to achieve such an extraordinary military um, result? Essentially, you know, in a a nutshell, what that means is very heavy military presence in the Palestinian villages and refugee camps located within a few kilometres of settlement. And that obviously then leads to a lot of friction, tensions, protests, etc., and people get arrested. So the most common offence children are prosecuted for in the military courts. And when I say children, the courts have jurisdiction over children as young as 12. The majority of children, though, who are prosecuted in the military courts of 15, 16, and 17. And the most common offense is throwing stones, and that can be, you know, uh, cover a range of, of um, circumstances, some, some dangerous, some seemingly trivial. So you might have situations where people are throwing stones at vehicles on a road, which obviously can be dangerous, right down to people protesting and people throwing stones at the wall. So we have cases where children will go to prison for three months for throwing stones at the, at the wall. And I found over the years, 10 years of being there, you know, when you tell people that sometimes people, children go to prison for throwing stones at the wall, most people are surprised by that. But once you spend a bit of time there and you understand the system, you realize it's not actually that surprising if you look at the job the military commander has been given. And essentially, in order to guarantee the safety of those settlers, he has to essentially intimidate the Palestinian population into submission. And it's not that these children who are throwing stones at the wall pose any danger or that they're going to damage the wall. But they do demonstrate as that child has that sense of or spirit of resistance in them. And if you're going to remain in occupied territory for any length of time, you have to identify that spirit of resistance and crush it. The children aren't necessarily arrested when they're throwing stones, are they? It happens often in the middle of the night. Some of them are arrested during protests and clashes during the day, but I think the majority are arrested in terrifying night raids in the middle of the night typically between 2 and 4 o'clock in the morning, 
starts with a loud bang at the front door. The family uh, uh, asked to stay in one room, not allowed to move around, and basically the commander of the group of soldiers will take control of that household uh, to the extent that if a parent dares ask a question about, you know, why are you in my house, why do you want to arrest my child, the response will either be, you know, very rude language, sometimes swearing, or being, you know, ignored, or sometimes pushing. And it leaves a scar behind, and, you know, and the young children are terrified, they wet uh, themselves, uh, mothers, uh, in, you know, expect this, because if you live, if you happen to live in a village where a settlement, an illegal settlement was built next door, in your mind, it's a question of timing that the soldiers will raid your house and arrest family members. So, you know, th- th- this black cloud is always there, and people and families plan their lives with this in mind, which has a strong impact, you know, on what you can do with your life. You know, they, they don't allow themselves to dream. They're always scared and so on. And what happens to a child once they're taken out of the home? As Salwa mentioned, most of the cases we document, uh, the children report being arrested in the middle of the night. And often the way that will come about is soldiers, the previous day, soldiers may have come into the village and um, young people would have thrown stones at the, the military convoy, which is what the convoy wanted to happen. They'll fire tear gas. There'll be general kind of mayhem. And quite often the, the soldiers will have cameras with them, film it, try and identify people. But, um, you know, as, as most of your listeners probably know, identification evidence is notoriously unreliable. But what, then what happens is then the next night there will be a, a raid on the home. And it's not uncommon for once the soldiers enter the house to go straight to someone's bedroom, open up their wardrobe because they're looking for a red T-shirt because there was some young person wearing a red T-shirt at a demonstration or throwing stones, etc. Or someone with a Barcelona T-shirt. But anyone who's been to the West Bank knows that half of the children wear Barcelona T-shirts and the other half wear Real Madrid T-shirts. So finding a a Barcelona T-shirt in a wardrobe in the West Bank is not particularly difficult. And then they'll be taken outside in in 80% of cases that we document. The parents aren't given any information about why this is occurring or or where the person is being taken to. They'll be blindfolded and and zip-tied, placed in the back of a military vehicle, and then taken to one of the larger settlements in the West Bank or interrogation. But that transfer process can sometimes take up to 10 hours, not because these interrogation centers are far away, but simply because there'll be multiple stops along the way in, in smaller settlements, in military bases. People are often then just left outside tied and blindfolded or put in shipping containers. It's really very arbitrary. It's, we have cases where people report that the soldier guarding them treated them with dignity and respect, and many cases where that just didn't occur. And then eventually, you know, sometime the next uh, morning, later that morning, the person will end up in one of these larger settlements and the interrogation will begin in most cases, without being informed of, of their legal rights. So under military law in the West Bank, people do have the right, in most cases, to consult with a lawyer prior to interrogation and the right to silence, but those rights are frequently ignored. Are parents forbidden to accompany the child? So under military law uh, in the West Bank, there's no legal uh, right to have parents present during the interrogation, but the military does have a discretion um, but that discretion is exercised in very few cases, just a handful of cases will the parents ever be allowed inside an interrogation room. Well, I'd imagine the children aren't very willing to 
explain what's been happening. They're not going to dob in their friends that they might have been the ones throwing the stones. So how do they get the information out of them? It's not difficult. So if you're woken up in the middle of the night, you are completely weakened, psychologically uh, weakened. And um, even if, if you're an adult, you'll find it difficult to confront the kind of very uh, sophisticated techniques that these interrogators have. They're experts in their jobs, and they know how to do it. So it's not very difficult to get information from children. You know, the sad thing is that, you know, children in general find it difficult to uh, re resist authority. So if a, a person in, uh, sitting in front of you and, you know, is shouting and frowning or banging the table and is carrying a pistol on his side, it's not um, difficult to uh, try to kind of guess what information that that person needs from you and to give it. Unfortunately, sometimes the information is not accurate. And for a child to get out of this difficult situation uh, will get any information or any name. And this is what we notice in our work. You know, sometimes information is accurate, sometimes it is not. But the system still works because it's about collectively punishing entire communities uh, wherever any form of resistance is uh, do documented. So that's basically the strategy or the objective behind interrogating children and getting information is to basically send a, a strong message to everyone that if one of you resists, you will all get it. How many of these children go on to jail? So what will happen is they'll all go for the interrogation process. In some cases... People will be held for two to four days and then released. And as Salwa was mentioning, this, this system works very well based on a deterrent effect. So what we find is that when children are scooped up, some who may be involved in protesting or throwing stones, some, many who are not, you put them through this system. And the first, particularly the first 24 to 48 hours are so harrowing for these children that in many cases, you don't then need to go further and prosecute them in the military courts because you've sent a very strong message. That child will not forget that 48 hours they, they were held in detention. Um, with others, they will then be sent to the military courts. So within two to six days or so, um, you're brought before one of two military courts in the West Bank. Generally, it's in the military court. Uh, you meet your lawyer for the first time. And what we find in the military courts is whether the person says they're innocent or guilty, Ultimately, the overwhelming majority of people who find themselves in the military court will ultimately plead guilty because often that's just the quickest way to get out of the system. Most children will be denied bail. So if they admit something, even if they didn't do it, if the charge is thrown stones, no one was injured, you're looking at probably four to six months in prison. But if you want to challenge the case, frequently you'll have to sit in prison on remand waiting for the case to be heard by the judge. That can take six months. In addition to that, some of these military judges live in the settlements. So if you're accused of throwing stones at settlers and the judge is a settler, uh, almost certainly you will be convicted if you contest the case and you'll get a tougher sentence than had you pleaded guilty. The result is that there are very few evidentiary hearings in the military courts. Most cases end in a plea bargain and the current conviction rate for children is 95%. It's actually come down a bit. It used to be 99.74%. The ones who do go to jail, is it a, a, an adult jail or is it a specially built children's jail? 
the uh, children are separated from um, adults, and this is a re kind of recent improvement in the system, I, I must say. Having said that, sometimes it's not in the best interest of children to be left alone without any supervision. It makes them uh, vulnerable to maybe recruitment, uh, maybe abuse by other uh, children. So it is an, an improvement, it is good, but to reconsider it from time to time, whether this is uh, good for the children. In the off chance that a child in the settlements commits a small crime, like the Palestinians do with throwing stones, they don't go to the military courts, do they? That's an interesting question. So technically speaking, the military law in the West Bank that has been in place since the 7th of June 1967 applies to everybody in the West Bank, including settlers. Now, with a conviction rate at 95%, obviously settlers don't want to appear in the military courts for understandable reasons. So the methodology within, with which the military have got around that issue, rather than you know, drafting a clearly discriminatory law, what they've done is some domestic regulations have been passed. And these regulations, the first thing they do is uh, define what an Israeli is in the West Bank. There's a kind of a lengthy definition as to what an Israeli in the West Bank is. And then the regulations provide that an Israeli in the West Bank is subject to concurrent jurisdiction, military and civilian, and is at the discretion of the prosecutor to decide which court system uh, you'll be prosecuted in. And perhaps not surprisingly, that discretion is exercised pretty much in every case to prosecute the settler in a civilian court system. And of course, the civilian court system has many more rights and protections than the military system. So to give you a very sort of brief uh, example of that, imagine a Palestinian child comes out of his village and a settler child comes out of his settlement, which happens, and they start throwing stones at each other. The Palestinian child will be prosecuted under military law, be arrested in the middle of the night in all probability, and go through the system we've described in brief. Whereas the settler child, if prosecuted at all, will be treated the same as a child in Tel Aviv through a, pretty much a world-class juvenile justice system with lots of rights and protections. In most cases, we'll have the parent present during the, the questioning and under no circumstances will be arrested in the middle of the night or interrogated in the middle of the night. So very, very different, different systems. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR and an interview with the directors of Military Court Watch, Palestinian Sawa Teabis and Australian lawyer Gerald Horton. Have either of you been at a prison when a child has been released? I have, yes. So it's basically out in nowhere. The prison is near Ramallah and the families are not told the exact time of the release of their child. So they're left there if it's hot and sunny or if it's raining for hours and hours and hours. And most of the children are, you know, or, or other prisoners are released towards the evening or at night. And so you're waiting a long, long time, and then finally the person shows up. And it's, uh, you know, wonderful to watch and lots of hugs and kisses and greetings. But the sad thing is this lasts for a very short time because as soon as the child goes home and the party is over, the parents will uh, notice change in that child's uh, behavior. They will show aggressive behavior to, towards uh, people around them. They want to, you know, isolate themselves. They don't socialize around the dinner table. Um, they don't take the advice of their um, parents. Many of them uh, uh, sleep all day and wake up all night, which is a sign of depression. You know, the person doesn't want to face life as he, has, you know, as he knows it. 
The other problem is many of them will drop out of school because spending four to six months in prison is a long time if you're in 10th, 11th grade with hardly any education inside prison. Uh, many of the boys don't want to go back to school because they don't trust the boys around them. One of them probably uh, reported their names to the authorities, and that is why they were arrested. And even worse, the boys around them don't trust them because they spent time in prison. They were interrogated. Who knows what information they gave or might give in the future. So they go back out of prison, you know, into the community, trying to integrate and find their lives, pick up their life again. And they basically are ostracized. And, of course, it's not only boys, is it, because they've got too many to look at in the last six months. Yeah, it's, it's mostly boys, but that's right. So currently the official statistics show 273 children in detention, of which five are girls. I had Tamimi's case is quite interesting in one sense. I think a good way of looking at that case is in terms of uh, concentric circles. So the first point circle, if you like, is that, the video footage of her slapping a soldier looks like a clear, clear case of, of assault. But then if you expand the view out a little bit, you appreciate that she had just received the news that um, her cousin had been shot in the head with a rubber bullet. And then if you extend the circle further out um, and ask yourself, well, what was that soldier doing in her village? And what you quickly notice if you raise your, your eyes a little bit is you see that there's actually a settlement 500 metres away from where she lives. And that's what we find time and time again with the evidence we collect, that if you live in a Palestinian community within you know, a kilometre or so of a settlement, you will have a constant military presence in your village, which inevitably leads to this friction. Um, now, from the military's perspective... They need that friction because they need to intimidate these communities into submission so they do not object to illegal settlement activity in the West Bank. What's different with the Tamini family is, although I don't know if it's a one-off, that they're not intimidated, that family. They're determined to keep up the struggle. Is that very unusual? I think I agree. I mean, the Tamimi family is quite unique in the sense that, you know, what they're willing to take as backlash against their uh, decision to protest. Uh, but you do find uh, pockets of similar kinds of activity, but uh, I think the system of intimidation is so effective, and it acts as a very effective deterrent, as Gerard was saying. The objective is to prevent, uh, not only punish, but also to prevent any meaningful resistance, whatever shape or form that, uh, that might take. And this is the general situation in the West Bank. There is not enough resistance. How do you collate information? So we have um, three field workers who uh, go out into the, into the field and, and collect testimonies from children who, who've been uh, through this system. And then that material is, is analysed for a number of issues and we report on it and, and you know, a lot of those findings are, are on our website. Um, and then we sort of uh, develop our recommendations around that evidence, very sort of basic recommendations, most of which rely on Israeli military law. For example, you know, everyone must be informed of their right to silence. They must consult with a lawyer prior to interrogation. Every interrogation should be audio-visually recorded. And just picking up on what Sawa said, uh, and the previous question about, you know, the Tamimis uh, not being broken, etc. The village, though, 
that she comes from and Nabi Saleh, they've been conducting protests since I think 2011 and many, many young people have been arrested and imprisoned from that village. And people have been killed. Some, I think there have been two or three deaths in that village and the result is after however many years, the, the protests have subsided. They're not every Friday anymore. Part of the process of going to prison too is that the, the families will be fined and so that's a quite a powerful technique that the military uses in these villages in the West Bank where people do resist through protesting. People will be be subjected to a heavy military presence. Many will find themselves in the military courts and ultimately those villages will be bankrupted with the fines that will be levied by the military courts. Do you get cooperation from the Israeli authorities to collate all your information? Is it widely available? Who's in jail? Who isn't in jail? How many at different times? The uh, prison authorities in Israel issue kind of regular numbers about numbers of prisoners, age groups, where they're being held, and so on and so forth. But for our work, we don't rely on the Israelis. We simply go to the field and collect evidence from the boys once they are uh, released. It's a number of different sources, too. So we, we collect evidence from the field, but also we work with a number of Israeli organizations to gain evidence from the authorities through freedom of information applications, mm-hmm. etc. What's interesting, though, is although the military authorities do provide these prison statistics, you have to pay for them. Uh, so it comes at a price. What happens to children under the age of 12 who are caught up in the system? There, there aren't so many cases involving younger children, but they do occur. And they, in broad terms, they fall into two categories. So imagine you're a soldier for a moment and you're Say you go into a refugee camp and lots of young people start throwing stones at you and everyone's running in all directions and you're just trying to grab the nearest person to you. In those circumstances, sometimes a 10 or 11-year-old can look very much like a 12-year-old, which is the minimum age of criminal responsibility in the military courts. So there can be innocent mistakes where you grab someone who you know, looks like 12 and you have to sort that down you know, at the police station or wherever. But then there are some cases where it's quite clear that the person is well below the minimum age of criminal responsibility, and and that's not an innocent mistake. And again, as with a lot of things in this situation, you have certain rules and regulations under Israeli military law, but then quite frequently the reality of the situation on the ground doesn't bear any relationship to those regulations. And to give you an example, say you're... Say you're in a a military unit and you're walking along the side of the road and you see four or five Palestinian children on the side of the road. You don't know, maybe they're throwing stones, maybe they're not, maybe they're thinking about throwing stones. And you know quite clearly they're not 12 years old, they're younger than 12. Um, And you know the courts don't have jurisdiction over them. Your job is very clear, your mission is very plain, and that is you have to protect the settlers travelling in occupied territory. You will not let that go. These children, you don't want them anywhere near that road to keep them as, as far away as those settlers as possible. So it's not uncommon then for those children to be rounded up, tied up, blindfolded, thrown into the back of the jeep, taken to a watchtower somewhere in the West Bank, left there for maybe three or four hours. Maybe a bit of intimidation will go on. They'll bring a, a, a dog close to the child whilst the child is blindfolded so the child can hear the panting of the dog. Various forms of intimidation. Then after four or five hours, you take the blindfold off, take the ties off, and you just dump them on the road and they can find their own way home. Now, obviously, that has nothing to do with army regulations or the rule of law, but you've probably, you've probably achieved your objective. 
you'll probably manage to intimidate those children and those children probably won't want to go anywhere near that road again. And I think that highlights, we see that time and time again in the work we do, that the bottom line is there's no nice way of doing settlement construction in occupied territory, which is one reason why they're illegal under international law, because it inevitably leads to this sort of behaviour. Do you get to talk to the soldiers and get their feelings about the job that they've been given to do? We don't, but there's uh, an organization in Israel called Breaking the Silence who's, uh, who do exactly that. They collect testimonies from uh, ex-Israeli soldiers who simply break the silence and talk about exactly what they did and what the objective was. Uh, amazing thing is these testimonies from soldiers provide corroborative evidence to the testimonies we collect from the children. It's like the other side of the same coin. There's so much overlap, which gives credibility to the uh, work that we do and the work that Breaking the Silence does, I guess. And over the years, we have, uh, you know, we, we meet with these former soldiers from Breaking the Silence a fair bit and hear their stories. And uh, my personal view is, uh, you know, they're extremely courageous because there's no no reason necessarily for them to speak out. And the current climate in Israel is such that if you do speak out as a former soldier, basically the sky will fall in on your head. You're public enemy number one. You'll be uh, vilified on national television from the president all the way down. And, you know, they could opt out of that. They could just decide to have a quiet life and sit on the beach in Tel Aviv. But they choose to speak out. Their objective is that Israeli society needs to know what's been done in their name in the West Bank. They cannot just turn a blind eye. This is what you need to do if you're going to put settlers into occupied territory. Who sees your reports and how widely do you speak with groups to let the world know? Because most of the world doesn't know. We are a small organisation, but we do brief uh, lots of people every year. On average, I think uh, we brief 100 delegations each year from members of parliament, lawyers, uh, activists, academics, politicians, diplomats, and so on. There's cumulative effect to, the, to these people who listen to us, and we take them to the court, and these, they see with their own eyes, and they get to speak to their parents waiting. Things are better in terms of people getting to know about it, but it's definitely not enough. One, one message too, that we, we've increasingly been bringing to people too. I mean, we do a lot of work also in the uh, Jewish communities, particularly in the UK and America. And what we've been noticing, which I think is a particular alarm to these communities, is that many of the techniques you see being used on Palestinians in the West Bank are now being used on Israeli Jews, um, particularly left-wing Israeli Jews. And to give you a, a recent example, a friend of ours who is an, uh, an, Israeli, an Israeli citizen, Jewish, came back from America about two weeks ago to Israel, was at Ben-Gurion Airport, and he was actually taken aside by a Shin Bet intelligence officer, taken to a room, and the first uh, thing the officer said to him was, you're not suspected of anything. Think of this as a warning conversation. And then asked him uh, what his relationship was with breaking the silence, what his relationship was with other anti-occupation groups. And this has happened about ten times now in the last two months or so. Now, this is obviously quite trivial compared to what Palestinians have been enduring for the last 51 years in the West Bank. But I think what it does show, which is particularly alarming, you know, if you're Israeli, perhaps Jewish, is how if you continue a military occupation in the West Bank for 51 years and all of that, all of what that entails, reduced rights, 
denial of people's rights, etc., you'd be naive to think that that lack of regard for the rule of law will remain in the West Bank. And what we're seeing is it's seeping into Israel. It's damaging Israeli institutions. And more and more Israelis, I think, are becoming alarmed at this. Um, particularly uh, a group of former Israeli generals have been speaking out saying that this creeping annexation of the West Bank uh, is catastrophic uh, for Israel um, and it has to be brought to an end. Just finally, are we talking about war crimes from what you've been speaking? There are a number of issues uh, that we encounter that um, are classified as breaches of the, of the Fourth Geneva Convention, which are war crimes. Two in particular, I think, are of particular notes simply because there's no dispute of fact. So m- most people can't agree on anything when it comes to Israel or Palestine. But there are two issues where there are no dispute of fact, and that is the settlements. The Israel, no one disputes that there are settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Um, so that's just a question of law. Uh, now, some, people, some supporters of Israel you know, deny that that's illegal. That has no support outside Israel, credible support. And the other one is the majority of prisoners, children and adults, are transferred out of the West Bank to prisons inside Israel. Now, under the Fourth Geneva Convention, Israel was perfectly entitled to establish military courts on the 7th of June 1967 on a temporary basis. But one of the conditions is that the courts and the prisons have to be in occupied territory. They can't be outside. And for the last 51 years, the overwhelming majority of prisoners have been transferred out. And that data comes from the Israeli prison service, where there's no dispute of fact. When are we going to see the end? A tricky question. The way we approach this is it's a bit like a marathon. You, you simply cannot predict. Uh, what you have to do is try and maintain hope, take each day as it comes. And support the people who are suffering the injustices. Exactly. And our, our position as an organisation is we're not pro-Palestinian, we're not pro-Israel, we're pro-rule of law. This is a rule of law issue, which I think affects everyone, uh, even beyond the region. Yeah, I think we simply have to stay in the game keep uh, chipping away, uh, you know, one drop at a time, one person at a time. I would like to mention that bigger voices than ourselves have spoken about this issue. There was a very important uh, report written by UNICEF in 2013, which found out that the ill-treatment in the system is widespread, systematic, and institutionalized throughout. A high-profile legal delegation from the UK came and uh, wrote an equally damning uh, report. So you never know where your drop of little thing that you're doing will land and what impact it will have. And the commitment that we have to ourselves is to stay in the game. Thank you both for doing what you're doing. Thanks very Thank much. You. I've been speaking with the co-directors of Military Court Watch in Jerusalem, Thawa Dias and Gerald Norton. They founded the group a number of years ago and work with others to highlight the treatment of Palestinian children and their families and their communities in occupied West Bank. That's all I have for today, but I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock and in a very short time you'll be hearing from Done By Law. Bye for now.